Downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. You are listening to Troubadours and Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Welcome to episode 281 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have a grand conversation with our resident historian, regular contributor, Surf William. And the Surf and I discuss presidential approaches across generations. Who is the Republican Party? The great Nelson Mandela, a prognosis for the United States, an historical perspective. Democrats are better than Republicans. Truth and reconciliation, among other things. A really wonderful, energized, and sometimes very humorous conversation with our resident historian, Surf William. We also have an EW essay titled You and Me, an excerpt from the unpublished autobiography of Nelson Mandela titled Conversations with Myself, and a poem titled Pagans. All of this, of course, as is always the case, will be infused with the energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 281 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours.
You and me. I was talking with a childhood friend the other day on the telephone. We have known, been involved in each other's lives for about 38 years. He is somewhat moderate, somewhat liberal in his political societal views. I brought up the word tyranny as a descriptive term to communicate my sense of our U.S. executive branch and the political party that supports it. I cited Thomas Jefferson's oft-referenced tree of liberty being refreshed with the blood of patriots and tyrants statement that he made in defense of our democratic society. My friend almost lost his marbles. How dare I claim we are experiencing tyranny? I don't know what tyranny is. He said I was talking about revolution as I comfortably sit in my house in a safe, soft enclave, the refrigerator humming in harmony with the central air conditioning. On a worn but nonetheless couch of privilege and restless arrogance, I suppose. We shifted our conversation to more harmonious milieus, mainly shared recollections from an innocent, wide-eyed period of our lives. We loosely promised to get together again soon. I still am wondering if I know what tyranny is as it relates to our system of government and those sent to nurture and guide it. My friend and I, I'm sure, both believe in justice and love. How do we get there, though? How do we assure those aspects of human capability are cherished and actualized? Can it be done without pain, without sacrifice? Is human harmony a realistic concept? Is hypocrisy and self-righteousness unavoidable? Am I a prisoner of subjectivity? Is the sun, moon, water, and wind all I need to survive? Is there a supreme power? How about a Jungian collectivism? Are we all just delusional, relativistic nihilists? Are these classifications and terms representative of our deepest convoluted self-importance or instead of our evolutionary high-mindedness? Such dualism, too, I think is a limited interpretation of it all. How do you suffer such fools as you and me? I suppose, expeditiously. Betting Taylor Swift Every night inside the Oculus Rift After Mr. and the Mrs. Finished dinner and the dishes
plugged into our hubs, skin and bones, a frozen smile on every face, as the stories we play, this must have been a wonderful place. told you never to call me at this number. Surf William, I'm sorry. It's the only number I have. Oh, EW, it's you. Yeah, please shut off the camera. I don't need to see you. Thank you. Oh, good. Okay. Yes, it's me, EW Conundrum here, calling on behalf of Troubadours and Rock on Tours, talking to our resident historian, Surf William. Yeah. How's it going? It's going well. Can you hear me okay? I sort of, yeah. It could be a little better perhaps. I, I thought I had I thought I had earbuds with, with the microphone and I and I don't. My kids took them all. Damn so kids. I'm 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 relegated I'm relegated to just talking on the phone like a normal person. Uh, I can hear you pretty well. Hopefully it that works out so the listeners okay, can hear. Good. There you go. Um, so you want to talk today about the Crusades, Anthony and Cleopatra. Treason versus love of dictators. Uh-huh. Ronald Reagan and Nelson Mandela. It was just Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday. That's right. I know you brought it up. You brought it up, and it made me, it made me think about a lot of things. I mean, you and I are children of the 80s. We remember apartheid. We remember the South African government and Nelson Mandela in prison. Yeah, yeah, we do. And, and uh, you know, Winnie as well. And uh, Winnie Mandela as well. I, I just, I think, you know, so we bring up Nelson Mandela now. He's lionized. He's canonized. Everybody loves him. But I can't help but think about the things that Reagan and the Republicans said about Nelson Mandela and the African National Congress in the 1980s when brave people were standing up uh, and protesting South Africa. Entertainers not going to play Sun City. Entertainers wouldn't go there. Um Political leaders with some courage came out in favor of the ANC and Nelson Mandela, uh, demanded that the South African government release him, and Ronald Reagan called him a terrorist and expressed support for the South African government, reversed all the sanctions that Jimmy Carter put into place uh, over, over moral outrage at apartheid. Reagan reversed all that. So we conveniently forget what these leaders stood for at critical moments when courage was needed. It's easy now to love Nelson Mandela. He's dead. It wasn't so easy in the 80s when the ANC was accused of being a communist insurgency. Yeah, exactly. You know, uh, he, uh, he has become an international iconic figure of, of patience and wisdom, uh, of forgiveness, uh, of course, of, of courage. But before that... Yeah, he was, as one of our presidents, called him a terrorist back in the 80s when he really needed support. Exactly. The United States government has the power learning this now. Uh, our government might not be able to go anywhere in the world and exert its will anywhere in the world, but certainly we can speak to the values and the ideals that this country was founded on, even if we don't live up to them ourselves. We can still be advocates for those values and ideals. 
and we can send a message out to the rest of the world that regardless of all of our flaws, and God, God knows we have a lot of them, that there are certain principles that we stand for. You know, what we're seeing today is a complete erosion of that. And the shocking part is that a sizable portion of, of, our, of our citizenry is going along with it and doesn't really have a major problem with that. And that's just kind of sad. I'm not sure what I... I'm not sure what I can attribute that to. Well, let me just say, I, I love what you're saying, but let me say this, too. As you're talking, I get the impression you're bobbing and weaving your head because your voice is going in and out. It's making me dizzy to imagine you bobbing and weaving. Can you sit still and keep your, your mouth near the mic and your, your contraption? Well, I'm going to just talk like a regular, like a telephone, and we'll see if that helps. Yeah, this is, do, how's this? Do, is, I know, is this good? I know you're is walking. Good? Or, yeah, that's good. I know you're walking good, good, around good. probably. No, I had you on speakerphone. I don't know. I, I'm really upset with my children. I'm going to have to beat them. Watch it. Watch it. Don't even kid around about that. <laughs> no, my children laugh at me. How old are they now? They are 11 and 14. Oh, God bless you. That's, you yeah. know, and, you, and the 14-year-old, she it's a, it's a female, so, and she's smarter than you, <laughs> yes. so, you know, you're going to have a tough, <laughs> tough time. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm resigned to my fate. <laughs> so, well, how do you think the the Crusades and Anthony and Cleopatra connected? It's like treason, I, I you know, love of dictator. Are you talking about all these are the topics you you uh, texted me? You want to get into? Well, I just throw it out there, right? I mean, that's whatever comes, whatever crosses my mind. I just figure, let's see what happens. Well, when you say treason versus love of a dictator, are you talking about contemporary times, the present day? Well, I'm talking about um, uh, Trump's behavior in Helsinki. And number one, was it really, I'm trying to figure out if it was, I mean, it, of course, I'm going to say, yeah, it certainly felt treasonous to me. But but my point is just to, to badmouth our intelligence agencies and to basically give support to a dictator um I, i'm not sure I, i'd have to really get into like get into constitutional law and see if that represents treason i don't know if it does but certainly what it does is it reflects where trump is at i mean it really was just a reflection of trump the person he he does love dictators he likes strong men he doesn't like democracy he doesn't like freedom of the press um he doesn't like loyal opposition I mean, these are just, he's, this isn't a bright person we're talking about here. I, I, I often liken our president to an amoeba who just reacts to things. You know, if you shine a light on these single-celled creatures, they, they, they will automatically, you know, reverse direction, for example. There's not a, there's not a thought process there. There's not, there's not, high, there's not executive function there where they're, where they're processing the information and they're, and they're considering options. No, no, no. You shine a light on these amoebas or you drop a certain chemical onto the onto the into the petri dish and they immediately react to it without thinking right it's right. that's how that's how trump strikes me trump just reacts to things there's no real thought process there where the guy is at is he likes he's got this fetish with anti-democratic anti-american dictators um we could get into the psychology of it. I don't nah. even think it's worthwhile. Nah, the point nah. is this. We know what he likes and we know what he stands for. So for him to be pro-Putin and anti-United States institutions that are designed to protect our democracy, that's not a shock to me. I'm well, not surprised by that. From a historical perspective, you know, you are a history teacher. You study history on your own a lot as well. 
Is this unprecedented for a U.S. president to be this way? <sighs> okay, a couple of things. Um, I think it was who was the president right before the depression, or when, when the depression hit? Was it? It wasn't Coolidge. Was it Hoover? Hoover. It was Hoover. Hoover. He was a person who had never been elected to office before. He had. He had. It was the presidency was his first elected office. I, I think it was Hoover, and. Uh, the way Hoover responded to unprecedented challenges um, was the way you would expect a neophyte to respond. Hoover didn't really fully grasp, number one, what was going on around him, and number two, what the proper reaction was. Um, Trump is another president who's never held elected office, has, no, has really, when you look at it, has really no idea how to be president. Um, and the, and I, I think of Hoover and I think of Andrew Jackson, but you know it's hard to speak to Andrew Jackson because even though I've read a lot about Jackson, it was a long time ago. But Jackson's sort of approach to the government was similar to Trump's in that they were both very suspect of the establishment, and they reacted to establishment politicians. Um, sort of, uh, they were very reactionary. So I don't know. I would say Trump is probably the most inept president we've ever had. I, I can't think of anybody who comes close in terms of literally being completely clueless. What about a, I'm not. What about a Taft or or a Buchanan? Oh no, 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 not at all, not at all. Because um, those people were veterans. Those people were held elected office before they were president. There was I mean, look, there was corruption. There was what appeared to be ineptitude. There, there was neglect of, of, their, of their office and their duties as we see it. Um, but I can't recall in all the history I've read any president being so completely unqualified for the job uh, uh, as Trump. And, and, you know, to me, and there have been a lot of presidents I didn't like, this is the most shocking thing I've ever seen. I'm literally every day I have to avoid the news. It's too shocking to me to see the president of the United States behave that way. I'm used to the hypocrisy and the double standards. Drove me crazy with, with every other previous president. But I've never seen anything like this ever in my life. It's truly unprecedented. And you're you sure it's just not your liberal leanings that sort of, sort of like uh, informs this, this intolerance for a Republican president and this distaste for a Republican president? I'm glad you asked that because I've done some thought experiments. And I thought to myself, what if you had an absolutely abhorrent, disgusting, hor just, just, just horrid human being, but they were advocating policies that you believed in? What would you do? What would your response be to that? And I, I had to think long and hard. I thought, how far would that person have to go before I said, I can't take this anymore. Yes, they're advocating policies that I'm in favor of, but I can't have this person represent me or my country or the office anymore. And honestly, if Trump were left-leaning and advocating policies I believed in and behaving the way he's behaving now and the way he has historically behaved, for which there's a lot of accusations, um... I probably have to say, no, that's that's enough. You know, we're going to have to find somebody else who's going to advocate my policies, but not be as wretched 
as a human being. And I mean, think about that for a minute. I didn't like George W. Bush. I didn't like Ronald Reagan. I didn't like H.W. Bush. I had big problems with Clinton. I had big problems with Obama. These are the presidents I recall in my adult life. I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't look at them and say, this person is, is this this person has no redeeming qualities. That's a really radical statement to make. And we're talking about the president of the United States. And I can find redeeming qualities in every one of those presidents I just mentioned. And I can't in Trump. You can't find one redeeming quality. Okay. I've tried. I've mm-hmm. tried. I, and, 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 and this is my, the, you know, my plea to the people who continue to support him is, you know, at what cost? You know, have you no shame or decency? How do you continue to be a supporter of that? And you and I both know that the offenses that he's committed so far, morally, socially, politically, are too numerous to mention. How far can it go? Do, do you think there are more people who support him? I, I, from what I last I read, uh, about 90 percent of Republicans approve of Donald Trump right now. Do you think a majority of that 90 percent approve of him because of the policy that the policy choices uh, he makes or uh, or does a majority of that 90 percent approve of who he is as well as the policy choices, uh, I I suppose, or maybe despite without regard for the policy choices, because we have different. I think you, you and I would agree we have different factions of the Republican Party. Uh, are people that have supported Trump in our, in our in our society as fellow citizens? Those who know he's a uh, a wretched human being, but you know he's still he's a Republican and he's going to give them their tax breaks and and you know make government mm-hmm. smaller all of that. So they're willing to deal with him as a, as an who he is as an individual. Then there are others who legitimately love the fact that he walks in front of the queen, or he talks about you know treating women terribly, or you know he he, he makes fun of different types of folks. They think that's great. How who what what is the larger part of the Republican Party that that supports him? Are they are ninety percent or are all of them? Do you think? Also in favor of who he is as a person, or is a great majority of that party more aware of, you know, the, the trade-off they're making, but still, given that he's an ass, but still, uh, you know, support him because he, he supports their policies? Where, where is it? I, I, all right. First of all, I, I question the poll numbers. I, I, I hear those numbers thrown around, and I don't know who took the poll, what questions they asked. So I question the 90%. But let's just, let's just go with it and pretend that it's right. Uh, the first thing I think Trump has done is he's given racists and bigots and white nationalists and xenophobes, he's given them license to openly express their anti-American sentiments. You know, ra- the, the, the racist, xenophobic, anti-immigrant um, mentality of the Republican Party has always been there. And the Republic gets, Republicans have known this for 50 years. With Nixon's Southern strategy, the whole idea was get all those previously voting Democrats who live in the South and are racist, appeal to their racism, and get them to switch over to Republicans. So all the Dixiecrats over the course of 20 or 30 years, switched allegiances, and those Dixiecrats became Republicans. Well, Ronald Reagan did it. Ronald Reagan started off his campaign in 1980 in Philadelphia, or in 79, in Philadelphia, 
Mississippi. And what's the significance of Philadelphia, Mississippi? Why on earth would a presidential candidate go to Philadelphia, Mississippi? Well, that was where three civil rights workers were brutally murdered. Sick. Who, it's sick that he chose right? that. Yeah. And now Reagan, Reagan went there knowing. He didn't have to say anything. The message was loud and clear. Dear racists, we're with you. You need to stop voting Democrat now. I'm your guy. So and, and vote for me because, I, you know, I'll let you hate and I'll let you be a bigot. And not only will I let you do it, I'll encourage it. Now, Trump is full blown. You know, Reagan still had to use dog whistles. Trump just uses regular whistles. Trump is just right out there. Bigot, racist, xenophobe, ignorant, giving people permission to be that way out in the open. And, you know, for them, it must feel good. Because over the last 50 years, we've done our best as a civilization, as a society, to shame those people enough to keep them underground, which is where I believe they belong. But not anymore. From the highest office in the land, they're getting encouragement. That's unheard of in our lifetime. Our historian, Surf William, here on Troubadours and Rock on Tours, reflecting on the presidency of Donald Trump in uh, you know, in terms of what he's doing, is it unprecedented? He says yes. Sir you're the only yes. one, and you're the only one I talk. I can't even talk about this president. You're the. You're pretty much the only one who I will get into a lengthy conversation with about Donald Trump because it makes me so sad and so mad and so upset and so discouraged that I have to focus on other things to keep myself up, to keep myself positive and moving forward with the hope that things will get better. Um, I don't like to talk about it too much. I don't either. So let's move on to something else. I think a lot of people are, 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 but we can't stop looking at what he's doing. That's the thing. I believe those folks who support him and and what he's doing to our country, which I think both of us would totally agree is negative. This is a great country. And what he and his supporters are doing is breaking up and getting mixed up this great, great, great country of ours. We can't let them wear us down because then they win if we become apathetic and disconnected. So we've got to keep that in mind, too. But let's shift. Yeah, let's shift somewhere else. Mm-hmm. By the way, you know, one of our regular contributors, Dwayne Heisler, you got, you got the midterm elections coming up, and we've got to be serious about that. We've got to be serious about that and make sure we take back at least the House, and then we could stymie a lot of what is going on in Washington, D.C. Anyway, Amen. And let, let's go to Nelson Mandela. Let, let's talk about him. Let's talk about this great man. You are listening to Troubadours and Rock on Tours with E.W. Conundrum Demure on Radio Free Brooklyn. Although he was okay. a communist and a terrorist and such, right? In the eyes <laughs> of some people. Yeah, yeah, right. I loved him back when I was an undergrad in my early 20s. A wee boy. I remember having a... Uh, a, a, an African National Congress T-shirt uh, with Nelson Mandela on it because he impressed me so much how he endured. Well, it, it, you know, uh, obviously, like I said, it, it's easy to love Nelson Mandela. What I what I often do is I I ask myself, how do I stack up? Now, obviously, I'm not Nelson Mandela, but how do I stack up? How far am I willing to go? for my convictions? What sacrifices am I willing to make for the things that I believe in? And, you know, what Nelson Mandela and people like Nelson Mandela make you do is take a long, hard look at yourself and ask yourself not just what your beliefs and values are, 
But what of those would you die for? Would you go to prison for? Um, it, it makes me, it makes me, it forces me oftentimes to come to terms with how strong I am and how, con- how much conviction I have in my, in my ideas and my beliefs, because Nelson Mandela is the extreme. Um, and I think what we can take away from Nelson Mandela is just a message of inspiration that even in the face of overwhelming odds, you can still stand up and you might even, you might even win. Um, nobody ever thought apartheid was going to end. Nobody ever thought Mandela would get out of jail and then become president. You ask somebody that in 1986, they would have thought you were on drugs. And he was in prison for how many years? 24, 25, and over 20. I, I should know the exact number, but it's over 20. And, and the, I, the thing that was even more impressive to me is after he got out, I mean, the, the people of color, the indigenous folk that live in South Africa far outnumber the European transplants, the Boers, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he could have said, if he wanted to, wipe them out. Vengeance. And what did he do instead? He said truth and reconciliation. Correct. That is one of the most beautiful, even though some people might say not realistic, and a lot of people got away with murder, literally. But what a beautiful notion to try to heal a country, to try to heal a people. A great spirit is willing to sacrifice their personal needs and desires for the greater good, whatever their message might be. If it's a people that they're leading to, to, to uh, liberation, if it's a, if it's a set of values that they stand by and can show are worthwhile, they, they forego that feeling of satisfaction of getting revenge on your enemies the people who did horrible brutal unmentionable things to innocent people to to working people to poor people um you're you're right they were allowed to get away with it and the logic was i'm pretty sure we can't keep doing this we have to find another way and part of that process is you folks who did these horrible things who really deserve to be punished you're going to get away with it and the reason you're going to get away with it is the greater, you know, it's sort of a utilitarian uh, view of the world. You're going to excuse those evils so that you can get to some greater good. Um, it's it's really mind-boggling and impressive. It is. I think, you know, if, if now there was a slaughter and an oppression of whites by blacks, he looked at it as this is our country and that's unhealthy. It's dysfunctional. We have to give us the truth. Tell us what you did and tell us why you did it. Let's get it. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Why did you behave like this? And once you take responsibility and we try to figure out and understand so that we don't do it again and we learn and grow, we will move on together as a nation. That's amazing. (laughs) That's heavy stuff. man. It's amazing. (laughs) He was in prison, by the way, for 27 years. There you go. Okay. I knew it was in the 20s. And, you know, Robbins Island, I don't know. I've never been to South Africa, but my understanding of it's Robbins Island, I think, was the prison. And my understanding is it's an island right off the coast. And you can see the people, you know, from the prison, you can see the people on the beaches. And I just feel like everything about that imprisonment was cruel and inhumane because you allow the prisoners to see, you know, right across an expanse of water, people enjoying their lives in freedom 
and you get to sit in your prison cell and, and watch that. I mean, everything the South African government uh, did was, was brutal and inhumane. And we supported them. Oh, wholeheartedly under the Republicans. Yeah. Under the Democrats. Now, let's think about this for a minute. Let's just be very, very stark. Under the Democrats, I mean, John Kennedy. Let's go back to the Kennedy administration. Kennedy. Kennedy warned South Africa, imposed, I believe, imposed sanctions. But I can tell you this. The Kennedy administration was hostile towards the South African government and told them they needed to change. The Nixon administration then embraced them and undid all of the sanctions that were put in place during the Kennedy administration. The Carter administration then reimposed them and said, this is a moral outrage. We are morally opposed to this government. It must change. The United States must stand for higher uh, ethical values. Then Reagan reversed all that. George W. Bush kept it going. By the time Bill Clinton came around, Mandela was out of prison. It was an issue. It wasn't an issue as it used to be in the olden days. But my point is, the Republicans were always on the wrong side. Always. And would you say the Bushes are more moderate compared to, well, George H.W., the father, was more moderate. Uh, yeah. As, as compared. Yeah. But we're going to forgive, listen, we're going to forgive all the sins of these Republicans because of Trump. <laughs> they're all going to look like, they're all going to look like, like, like St. George yeah. in comparison. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, but Trump has, Trump has altered our reality. Because those presidents were not good people. George H.W. Bush was the head of the CIA. You're right. We all know what the CIA is. These were not good people. These were people, in my opinion, who were, in many ways, un-American. Now, I tip my hat to people like George H.W. Bush, who served in the military, and John McCain, who served in the military. I don't necessarily agree with everything they did, but I understand this notion that they were serving their country, and I respect that. But I will tell you that as elected officials in office, I don't respect what they did. Did you feel compelled to mention their military service because if not, you will be castigated, or do you truly believe that? I respect people who serve in the military because they are sacrificing. Uh, what I what I what I absolutely can't uh, uh, can't tolerate and can't abide are politicians who use servicemen and women as pawns and send them into situations that are deadly for no real value for American foreign policy or domestic policy. So we've seen that over and over again. Um, that is something I can't abide. But no, I respect people who served, and I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt and say they served because they felt it was the right thing to do. Um, you know, John McCain was a fighter pilot who dropped bombs on North Vietnam. I, I can't get behind that, but I can't blame I can't blame somebody in the army for joining the army to quote unquote serve their country. I get that idea. And I'm not opposed to it. It's not their responsibility to determine what the mission is. It is their superiors' responsibility and their civilian leadership's responsibility to use them and utilize them in a responsible way that reflects our values. And too often, those people are abused um, and, and misused for short-term political gain. And that's wrong. All right, Sir William, we only have a couple of minutes left. That was a great, great analysis, great, re great response to my question. Um, what, how do we wrap this up from an historical perspective? Where, where are we going? Are you really troubled that our, this is the fall of, of the, the United States empire? I, I think, you know, I love that you refer to me as the resident historian. I think that's great. I, I think what you have 
is policy made either by people who don't care or people who do know better, people who have studied history and still make those decisions for whatever reason. Um, they make these decisions that are detrimental to us and to our policy. And we can see throughout history that oftentimes what they're doing doesn't work. We have precedent. And, you know, you're seeing this now in this current administration, making all the mistakes that we've seen made over and over again. Somebody must be making money on it somewhere. Um, but I think if people truly understood history a little better, they might be they might ask better questions they might elect more responsible leaders and they might demand more more moral, coherent, constructive policy than what we're getting from our current leadership. Beautiful. Well put, well said. Thank you for sharing your time and your insight on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And uh, I'll be seeing you in a couple of weeks. I can look forward to it. Hey, congratulations to you, too. I understand you're nationwide now. You're taking over the airwaves. Yeah. Very proud, of, very proud of you. Well, hey, it's because I have fascinating individuals such as yourself on the program <laughs> regularly. So thank you. <laughs> All righty, W. Take care. Peace. Peace. Closer I get, you're wasting your time. The more you ignore me, the closer I get, you're wasting your time. I will be in the bar.
An excerpt from the unpublished sequel of Nelson Mandela's autobiography, written October 16, 1998, titled The Presidential Years, Chapter 1. Men and women all over the world, right down the centuries, come and go. Some leave nothing behind, not even their names. It would seem they never existed at all. Others do leave something behind, the haunting memory of the evil deeds they committed against other people, gross violations of human rights, not only limited to oppression and exploitation of ethnic minorities or vice versa, but who even resort to genocide in order to maintain their horrendous policies. The moral decay of some communities in various parts of the world reveals itself among others in the use of the name of God to justify the maintenance of actions which are condemned by the entire world as crimes against humanity. Among the multitude of those who have throughout history committed themselves to the struggle for justice in all its implications are some of those who have commanded invincible liberation armies who waged stirring operations and sacrificed enormously in order to free their people from the yoke of oppression, to better their lives by creating jobs, building houses, hospitals, schools, introducing electricity, and bringing clean and healthy water to people, especially in the rural areas. Their aim was to remove the gap between the rich and the poor, the educated and the uneducated, the healthy and those afflicted by preventable diseases. Indeed, when reactionary regimes were ultimately toppled, the liberators tried to the best of their ability and within the limits of their resources to carry out these noble objectives and to introduce clean government free of all forms of corruption. Almost every member of the oppressed group was full of hope that their cherished dreams would at last be realized, that they would in due course regain the human dignity denied to them for decades and even centuries. But... History never stops to play tricks, even with seasoned and world-famous freedom fighters. Frequently, erstwhile revolutionaries have easily succumbed to greed and the tendency to divert public resources for personal enrichment ultimately overwhelmed them. By amassing vast personal wealth and by betraying the noble objectives which made them famous, they virtually deserted the masses of the people and joined the former oppressors who enriched themselves by mercilessly robbing the poorest of the poor. There is universal respect and even admiration for those who are humble and simple by nature and who have absolute confidence in all human beings, irrespective of their social status. These are men and women, known and unknown, who have declared total war against all forms of gross violation of human rights wherever in the world such excesses occur. They are generally optimistic, believing that in every community in the world there are good men and women who believe in peace as the most powerful weapon in the search for lasting solutions. The actual situation on the ground may justify the use of violence, which even good men and women may find it difficult to avoid. But even in such cases, the use of force would be an exceptional measure 
whose primary aim is to create the necessary environment for peaceful solutions. It is such good men and women who are the hope of the world. Their efforts and achievements are recognized beyond the grave, even far beyond the borders of their countries. They become immortal. My general impression after reading several autobiographies is that an autobiography is not merely a catalog of events and experiences in which a person has been involved, but that it also serves as some blueprint on which others may well model their own lives. This book has no such pretensions as it has nothing to leave behind. As a young man, I combined all the weaknesses, errors, and indiscretions of a country boy whose range of vision and experience was influenced mainly by events in the area in which I grew up and the colleges to which I was sent. I relied on arrogance in order to hide my weaknesses. As an adult, my comrades raised me and other fellow prisoners, with some significant exceptions, from obscurity to either a bogie or enigma. Although the aura of being one of the world's longest serving prisoners never totally evaporated. One issue that deeply worried me in prison was the false image that I unwittingly projected to the outside world of being regarded as a saint. I never was one, even on the basis of an earthly definition of a saint as a sinner who keeps on trying.
pagans. Summer sun sits on the crest of interloping mountainsides, burnishing orange so powerful and alluring. I yearn to bathe and dance inside of it. I want you to join me. We could worship like pagans and nurture our human spirit infinite. episode 281 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, UW Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our resident historian, Surf William. I'd like to thank also the great Nelson Mandela and these musical artists. 
Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The New Radicals, Father John Misty, Morrissey, The Sekulu Company, George Harrison, Cat Edmondson, Brantford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. Until next week, why don't we try to enjoy this one? Thanks for listening. <laughs>